Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you that here our Lord Jesus reveals himself and what he seeks from you. And we pray in your mercy that as we see his heart we will grow in love of him and grow in knowledge of his love for us, that we would see what matters to him and that what matters to him would matter to us and we would trust him and in trusting him trust you, his almighty Father. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to receive this word as your word, to know its comfort, encouragement, its teaching, its correction, rebuke and training so that we would be those who trust our Lord Jesus for life and live to serve him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as I was preparing this week to speak on John 17, I was filled with a tremendous sense of privilege that you and I and all believers are able to witness in this prayer the relationship of the Son to the Father at this moment in Jesus' life. Jesus' hour has arrived. The time for the completion of his work, the time for him to be lifted up on the cross, the climax of his life on earth. And at this time, having prepared his followers for what is to come in his conversation with them in the upper room, he prays. Now think of that. Now there is nothing automatic or mechanical about Jesus completing his work. This is a deeply personal prayer as he seeks from the Father the successful completion of his life's work. It is an expression of his love for the Father and a window, and a window into what has always been the case, the Son's dependence on the Father for all things. Giving himself to the Father's will, he seeks from the Father the outcome the Father has willed. And Jesus' dependent, obedient trust in the Father in doing what he knows is his will. His dependent, obedient trust expressed in this prayer is actually a model for our prayers as we give ourselves to doing Jesus' will. The prayers Jesus has just encouraged his followers to pray in his name at the end of John 16. This prayer is for us, even as it makes the Son known to us. And this prayer makes clear what Jesus believes, that uh, clear that Jesus lives and believes by what he has taught, that all he has comes from the Father, and that he is one with the Father in all that's to be accomplished in the salvation of the Father's people. And like the prayer before Lazarus's tomb, we should be in no doubt that this is a prayer the Father hears and answers. There also, verse 41, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew, I know that you always hear me. The Father always hears Jesus' prayer. And like that prayer, this is a prayer 
both the first disciples and we are meant to hear. Jesus said that explicitly in verse 13. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now these things in verse 13 also includes all that he said in his final conversation with the disciples in chapters 14 to 16. But these things particularly refers to the words of this prayer. Jesus prays and he lets us hear what he prays so that the disciples and we who believe in Jesus by their witness may have Jesus' joy made complete in us. Now the sense is both that Jesus may have joy in us as he gives us to the Father to be his saved people and that we might have fullness of joy in Jesus, joy in hearing what Jesus asked for, joy in knowing that what he asked for is given him by his Father. Joy. Joy can seem so intangible, so abstract, so hard to grasp. And joy can sometimes seem so far from our reality as it was from the disciples' reality that night, overwhelmed as they were by confusion, uncertainty and fear as Jesus spoke of his departure. Yet joy is so good, so sustaining, isn't it? Joy is like a fire in our hearts that gives warmth in our innermost being, even when all outside is cold, hostile and hurtful that gives light when we're surrounded by darkness, by lies and ignorance. Joys and assurance that all will be well even when all seems lost. A renewing of inner strength in the midst of weariness. In John 17 is a well of joy. As we understand what Jesus seeks from the Father, and know that what Jesus seeks, the Father is most certainly granted, a well of joy from which we may draw often. And for that reason alone, though there's so much in this prayer, I would encourage you to return to it and meditate on it again and again for joy. So for what and for whom does Jesus pray? When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Jesus firstly prays for himself. Father, glorify your Son. Jesus is asking that in the events that follow, his Father would make known his, Jesus, reality. Glory is the visible expression of someone's reality that leaves you with a true impression of their reality. So the glory of the sun is its light and heat. They create an impression of the sun's reality. The glory of a king, say, is his army and his wealth displayed. They create an impression on us of the reality of his power and authority. Moses in Exodus 33 asked to see God's glory. What he experienced hidden in that cleft in the rock was God's proclamation of his name, a true impression of his reality. Jesus is asking that in the events that follow, the events of his hour, 
the Father would act to show his, Jesus, reality, that he is the Son sent from the Father, one with him eternally, doing the Father's will. And that's actually what happens, isn't it? On the cross, he is seen as the saviour of the world. In the resurrection, the one who has life in himself, in his going to the Father and sending the Spirit, the one who gives the power and life of God, who brings the new creation, the salvation of the God of Israel has promised. He's seen as God from God. Jesus prays for himself, though with a purpose the purpose that has been his purpose throughout, the purpose he has accomplished so far in his ministry on earth through his obedience to the Father, verse 4. He prays so that he might glorify the Father, bring people to know the truth about God the Father as they come to know the truth about himself, Jesus, that the Father would be known as the Father of the Son, the faithful Lord, the only saving God. And Jesus asks confidently because it is the Father's will, seen, verse 2, in his gift of authority over all flesh to Jesus so that Jesus can give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. It's the Father's will that Jesus be glorified. You see, that life, that eternal life, is dependent on the glorification of the Son and the Father in what follows, in the revelation of their reality. For eternal life is, verse 3, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To experience life, to have eternal life, that's not just more of this life, but the life of the age to come, the life that is of joy and love and peace. We have to receive the revelation of the Father and the Son. <coughs> the revelation especially given in the cross and what follows. You see, knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent is not just a knowing about, it's the knowing of relationship. A relationship that always involves trust and love and obedience for its relationship with the living God. To know in this way involves the revelation of the Father and Son's reality, seeing their glory. And it involves, in that revelation of reality, the achievement of reconciliation, of salvation, reconciliation between God and us. Eternal life is dependent on the Father answering the Son's prayer, glorifying the Son, and so enabling the Son to glorify the Father. That revelation of reality means showing that the Son is pre-existent, the eternal beloved Son, sharing in the life of God, the glory of God. It is a reality expressed in the first words of the Gospel by John, who came to know Jesus' glory. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's a reality revealed in the Father raising the crucified Son and exalting him at his right hand with authority to judge, forgive and give the life-giving Spirit of God. That's a resurrection and exaltation that says Jesus was right in everything he said about himself. He's right in saying that he's sent from the Father, right in saying that he is, I am and that in seeing his glory, 
we find what we need, grace and truth. Jesus prays for himself and he prays for the provision of life for us in knowing the Father and the Son. Do you know that life? Eternal life found in relationship with the Father and the Son in receiving the revelation of the one true God given in Jesus, confessing that God is, as Jesus reveals him to be, a God who can be known, whose love can be known, a God who can be called upon. Oh, eternal life is found in receiving the grace of God through believing Jesus dying on the cross for sin is the saving work of the one God, Father and Son, a God who gives life to rebels. Do you know this life? Can you say that I know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have seen? Well, having prayed for himself, Jesus then goes on and prays for his first followers. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. He makes clear for whom he's praying in verses 6 to 9. Those to whom, verse 6, he's revealed the Father. God's name is his revelation of himself by which he can be known and related to. Jesus has revealed the Father to his first followers. Remember what Jesus said? He who has seen, the, has seen me has seen the Father. He has revealed him fully, completely. Oh, these first followers are those given to Jesus by the Father. Those who have, verse 8, kept the word of the Father spoken by Jesus, embraced Jesus' teaching as God's teaching. And so they know, as Jesus has repeatedly claimed, that Jesus has come from the Father, sent by the Father. So the ones for whom he's praying are those who have received Jesus on Jesus' terms, accepting what he has said of himself and God. He prays for these, his first disciples, and not, verse 9, for the world. Human society, humanity that is hostile to God, rejecting of Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus has no interest in the world. We'll see in verses 20 following that that's not the case. It just means that his followers are distinguished from the world and that in these requests, the prayers that Jesus is now making, he has in view his first followers. And they need his prayers for their circumstances have changed and are changing again. Firstly, verse 12, Jesus, who has protected and kept them until now, is leaving the world while they remain in the world. And so they'll be out without his protection in a world, verse 14, that hates them. They'll be exposed to the world's murderous and sustained hostility that Jesus had already warned them of in John 15 and which they will see visited upon Jesus as the world crucifies him. And withdrawing from the world is not an option for Jesus' followers because you see, verse 18, that Jesus is sending them into the world to continue the mission the Father gave Jesus. 
And Jesus knows that left to themselves, when they encounter the world's hostility directed against Jesus and against them as followers of Jesus, they will crumble. Jesus has just warned them at the end of chapter 16 that they'll all scatter and abandon him, leave him alone to face the world. He knows his followers have no strength in themselves to resist the world's pressure. The safety of Jesus' followers, the success of his mission to save those whom the Father has given him out of the world is at stake. So he prays to the Father for them. Three requests. Firstly, verse 11, that the Father would keep them in his name. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that you, that they may be one even as we are one. Now if you're following in the NIV, if that's your Bible, in his name is translated by the power of your name. Protect them by the power of your name. But Jesus is actually asking for more. He's asking that they be kept in the sphere of Jesus' revelation of the Father, that they would abide in the truth of Jesus to whom the Father has entrusted his name, that is, to whom the Father has entrusted his revelation. He's asking that they would abide in the revelation of God mediated by Jesus. So he's asking that his disciples will hold fast to his teaching. Keep on confessing him as the Son sent into the world by the Father to save, who makes the Father known. And granting this prayer will have the result that they'll be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. As Jesus said in John 10.38, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus reveals the Father and Son to be the one saving God of Israel, not separate gods but the only one God. And where Jesus' people are kept in the truth of God revealed in Jesus, the one God will have one people. Further, kept in the truth, Jesus' followers won't be scattered or fragmented. They won't be lost because of the world's pressure or and hostility. Confessing the truth of the gospel, they'll be one a unity that is the fruit of a common confession of God in Christ, of all coming to the Father in the only way possible, through the Son. Secondly, Jesus asked the Father, verse 13, that he would keep them from the evil one. Now this might sound like a repetition of the first request, for the evil one, the devil, is the ruler of this world. And it does address the same concern, the, the scattering and loss of Jesus' people in face of the world's pressure. But Jesus doesn't ask them to be taken out of the world, to escape or to withdraw. No, he has confidence in the power of his Father to keep them. But where the first request focused on their being kept in the truth, this asks for more. Remember, the devil has been characterised by Jesus as not only a liar, but a murderer, as someone who is characterised and sensed by hatred. See that, John 8? The devil says Jesus is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth within him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He's a liar and a father of lies. And then in 1 John, we're reminded that Murder, verse 15, has its origin in hatred. 
Jesus is praying that his followers be kept from hatred, from lovelessness as well as lies, the lovelessness that excludes and divides and destroys. In being kept from the evil one, Jesus is praying that his followers be kept as his, people who are to be known for their love of one another. And he's been praying that they'll be kept in righteousness. As they continue in the world, Jesus does not want them conformed to the world's values, the values of the evil one, or to be deceived by the evil one. And thirdly, Jesus prays that his followers be sanctified in truth. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, when we think of sanctify, we tend to think of moral holiness, if the word means anything to us at all. It's not a commonly used word, is it, sanctified? Though um, no, I was watching the Aretha Franklin movie the other day. I don't know if any of you have seen it. And uh, James Cleaver said, this is a sanctified church. And I thought, amen, brother, uh, which it was entirely appropriate in that context. Anyhow, uh, but we tend not to use that word. We tend to, to, to think about moral holiness. But holiness has as its core meaning being set apart, consecrated to God. That's the way the word's translated in, in the second use in relation to Jesus of, of the word to sanctify him. Verse 19 speaks of Jesus uh, consecrating himself, sanctifying himself. See, Jesus is asking the Father that his disciples be set apart, consecrated for the task that Jesus is giving them to take his message into the world. He asks for them to be set apart in the truth, that is, that they be fitted for the task of being Jesus' witnesses in the world, being his messengers sent into the world with his saving gospel by being immersed in the truth that Jesus taught, the Father's word that Jesus has spoken to them. He's asking the Father that his disciples should know, believe and live by his word so they can be faithful messengers. And for this to happen, verse 19, Jesus says he sanctifies, he consecrates himself. Here on the night before he dies, he is again setting himself apart for the work the Father has given him and that work is the work of dying on the cross for the sins of the world. Jesus is the willing son. His death is not exacted from him. He is one with his father in purpose and achievement, in saving through his death. He is the one who lays down his life freely of his own accord. And he does it, he says, for the sake of his disciples, those given to him by the Father, that they might be consecrated, set apart in truth. Now, how does Jesus sanctifying himself, giving himself in death for his followers, his sheep, fit them for this work of testifying to him in the world? Three things. Firstly, Jesus' death fits them for his service and the service of the Father by removing the offence of their sin. He's on the cross, the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world, taking away their sin. Secondly, Jesus' death, his going to the Father, fits them for service 
by being the means, as we've heard, through which the Holy Spirit will come, who will guide them into all truth. That Spirit won't come unless Jesus goes to the Father through dying on the cross and rising. And thirdly, in Jesus' death and rising, the truth of the Father and the Son, the truth of the message the apostles will take into the world will be fully revealed and vindicated. Jesus, in his willing obedience, is the means by which the Father answers his prayer for his followers. But Jesus doesn't just pray for his first followers. Uh, he knows that their mission, where the Father has consecrated them in the truth, will be effective, that through their being sent into the world, Jesus will gather his other sheep. And so he prays for those other sheep. I do not, verse 20, ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, did you hear that? That's us. Jesus is praying for you and I if we're believers in Jesus. And isn't that a comfort? To know that our Saviour on the night before he died prayed for us. Those who come to believe in Jesus through believing the testimony of the apostles, believing this gospel that we are reading together tonight. But what does Jesus pray for us and why? In verses 20 to 23, Jesus does not specify again his request for believers. Rather, he enlarges on the purpose of his prayer for us, for including us in his prayers for his disciples. Yet verse 20, where he says, I do not ask for these only, tells us that what he's asked for his first followers, he has also asked for all his followers. He's asked that all believers be kept in the Father's name that he's given to Jesus. That is, that all believers be kept in the truth of God's revelation of himself, mediated by the Son, kept believing Jesus' words to be the words of God. Oh, he's asking that all be believers be kept from the evil one. That is, that we be kept from lies and lovelessness, kept living truly as his disciples by being characterised by their love of one another. And he's asking, yes, verse 17, that all would be consecrated in the truth, set apart for Jesus' mission in the world by being immersed in Jesus' word, that they too would know the benefits that flow from Jesus sanctifying himself on the cross and give themselves to Jesus' work. But the focus is on the purpose of these prayers for them. Here Jesus repeats the purpose he's already given in verse 11 and he adds another purpose or another result of this prayer being answered in verses 21 and 23 that the world might believe or know that Jesus has been sent by the Father. Let's unpack what Jesus says will be the result of his Father answering this prayer of his people being kept by the Father in the truth Jesus reveals and the love Jesus commands. So firstly, verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. The result of the Father answering Jesus' prayer will be the unity of Jesus' people. All Jesus' followers from every nation and tongue, language and tribe will be the one people of the one only God 
You see, just as there is only one God, that's what the Father in me and I in you guarantees. It guarantees that the Father and the Son are one. Just as there is only one God, the one God has only one people. And, and that unity of this one people is in some ways to be like the unity of the Father and the Son, where they are distinct, not collapsed into each other, but never separate. So there's diversity in unity. And that unity is to be expressed, as is the Father and the Son's unity, in being one in purpose, word and deed. And believers experience this as they are in the Father and the Son, which is language which recalls for us John 15, remember, where we are in the Son as branches of Jesus, the true vine, and we abide in him for life by holding fast to his word. Now this results repeated in verses 22 and 23, that they may be one, says Jesus, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. It's as we abide in Christ and Christ abides in us, that is, as we are joined spiritually to Jesus by faith, that we are perfected into one, the one vine, the one flock, the one people of God. And this in turn will have another result. Jesus speaks of this, that they be one, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Or again, verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, loved them even as you loved me. You see, Jesus has not forgotten the world, the rebellious world. But he furthers his purpose of being the saviour of the world, the loving purpose of God in sending him into the world so that all who believe in him might live. He furthers that purpose when he ascends to the Father through his work in his disciples, his work in you and I. The world believing, knowing that the Father sent the Son, speaks first of Jesus saving people out of the world. You see, in John, what distinguishes Jesus' followers from those still in darkness is believing, knowing that Jesus is sent into the world by the Father. Where you know that, you trust Jesus. And when people come to confess this, they'll also confess that those they once hated and despised are actually those who are loved by the Father, the eternal, almighty God. Through Jesus' followers being one, spiritually united to Christ and to each other, they in Christ and Christ in them, Jesus saves out of the world. But in John, while people are saved out of the world, the world itself is never saved. And so this verse also speaks of the final acknowledgement by the rebellious world at the last day of what it can no longer deny that Jesus, the exalted Jesus, whom they must face, was sent by the Father, and his people are those the Father loves. Now this purpose of Jesus in his people being one tells us that the unity that Jesus speaks of as resulting from his prayer being answered is a visible unity, something the world can observe. What's observed is, is of course, not just the unity, but the cause and source of the unity is Jesus' prayer is answered. Faithfulness to the truth of Jesus, faithfulness to the command of Jesus to love, faithfulness to the mission of Jesus to the world. 
The world should see that. And verse 22 reminds us that Jesus' work is the way the Father answers this prayer. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Jesus says that he has given his followers the glory the Father has given to him. Now, in what sense does Jesus give his followers his glory? Well, I think it's a twofold sense. Firstly, he has revealed to them his own glory. Remember, John, right back at the beginning, and we beheld his glory, glory as the one and only sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus has convinced us, his followers, that he is who he is, the only begotten sent from the Father, with the Father's glory, full of grace and truth. But in doing that, Jesus has, in a sense, invited his followers into his glory. For in believing in him, he has given believers the authority to become children of God. That is, he has invited believers to have a relationship with the Father like his, a relationship of love and obedience to the Father by loving and obeying God's Son. And in so doing, we come to know, to share in, and to live by Jesus' grace and truth. Our lives should become characterised by that grace and truth. It's as we receive Jesus' glory, receive his revelation of himself as the true God, his working, his, that, that, that his work is, is done in obedience to the Father, is working the salvation the true God brings. It's as we receive Jesus' glory that we are one. And this is a, a unity that's given across divisions of culture and language. It's the fruit of Christ's work. You see, the one God, as I've said, has only one people, those who are his by being in the true vine, those who are his by holding fast to the truth of Jesus and living a life of love in obedience to Jesus. But if our being one is so important, the means of saving out of the world by convicting that Jesus has been sent from the Father, what's our responsibility to this unity? Now, the Apostle Paul was convinced of the unity of Christ's people. Whatever their background, a unity in spirit and truth resulting from Christ's death, he insisted on it in Galatians, neither Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, female. We're one in Christ. He insists on it in Ephesians, how we're reconciled in one body to the Father, have access in one spirit to the Father, being built into one holy temple. And in Ephesians 4, he goes on to urge the Ephesians to maintain that unity. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, for there is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We maintain, not create, unity. We maintain unity by 
holding fast to the gospel. As unity is created by the gospel, it can never be maintained by abandoning or compromising the gospel. Oh, we maintain unity by the way we relate to our brothers and sisters in obedience to Jesus' command to love. And so unity can never be maintained where there's open defiance of Jesus' commands. And yes, we maintain unity locally. You see, showing this unity, a visible unity, starts amongst us. The world sees this unity, experiences this unity in the Christians they come in contact with, in the way we talk to and talk about each other, in the way we love not just with words but in practice, in the way we're committed to the work of the gospel together. Oh, in the way we welcome all believers, all who have true confession of Jesus. Unity has to be seen in us and our relationships. Well, having asked for his first followers and then for those who believe in him through their testimony, the Lord Jesus then makes one final request to his Father, a request for all his followers. And it is wonderful. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is praying that his death will secure the purpose for which he's been sent into the world, to give eternal life to the Lord's people, that life found in knowing the Father and the Son, that we would have that life in knowing the Father and the Son forever. Now, although we see Jesus' glory in the Gospel, though now we can confess with John that in Jesus we see the glory of the unique one from the Father, though we can now confess that in Jesus' life, death and rising we see the true God, the glory of the Father and the Son revealed, we know, don't we, that we see only a part, that our hearts, in a sense, and our understanding is small, like our love. But one day we will see Jesus' glory fully, understand what it is for Jesus to be the eternal Son, loved from eternity. That day will come when believers are with Jesus, where he is, as he is promised. Now we actually get a glimpse of that, of what that will be like in Revelation. In Revelation 5, we see the Lamb, that is Jesus, in the midst of the throne, sharing in the glory of God, receiving the praise of the whole creation who cry out, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. Jesus' glory will fill heaven. And that's a glory we see in Revelation 22 that the Lord's people will continue to see in the new heaven and earth forever, standing before his throne, seeing his face. It's an extraordinary hope, isn't it? Are you so confident in Jesus, in his relationship to the Father, in his being the Son sent from the Father, whom the Father has glorified, that your hope is to see Jesus' glory fully and forever because you will be with Jesus forever.
is your hope to know fully his grace and truth forever. Being with Jesus and seeing his glory, actually knowing God as we are known, that is a great hope, isn't it? It's a hope which is worth enduring the world's hostility to come to fulfilment of. Well, Jesus concludes his prayer with a final commitment to the Father's will, to revealing the Father's glory. Verse 26, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Hear Jesus, I will continue to make it known. I, says Jesus, will continue to reveal the true, the saving God to be known and called upon by all who will believe in Jesus for all time. Making known the Father's name. That's actually what's happening in Jesus' death on the cross that will soon follow. That's what's happening in the Father raising Jesus from the dead. That is what is happening in Jesus being exalted to the Father's right hand and pouring out the Spirit on his followers. And that's what's happening in the continuing witness of his followers in the world. Jesus making the Father's name, the revelation of the Father known. That is what is happening as you are hearing the gospel tonight. Jesus making the Father known. In all this, in the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, the pouring out of the Spirit, the testimony of the apostles, the reading of his word, in all this, the glorified Jesus, bringing glory to the Father by continuing to reveal the truth about the Father, the truth that saves, the truth that brings you and I to know his love. And to have Jesus, that is the life of Jesus by his spirit in us. Go back to this prayer and realise this prayer and Jesus' commitment to glorify the Father saves us. There is a lot, isn't there, in this prayer. It's not surprising. For Jesus' death and rising and exaltation are the fulfilment and key to God's purposes for all creation and for his people. I mean, what do you take away from, from a prayer like this? It's so rich. But let me suggest three things. Firstly, let it teach you the importance of unity so that you would repent of lies and lovelessness that destroy that unity. You know, repent if you've started to depart from the truth of the gospel to substitute what you would like to believe for what Jesus has said about himself. If that's what you've started to do and you sense that, well, you should repent. If you've started to allow your, say, irritations or your selfish ambition to direct and distort your relationship with others, started to let those things lead you to angry and judgmental words or thoughtless or unkind actions, you should repent. We have to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, 
the unity for which Jesus prayed, the unity which Jesus ensured amongst his people by his death. Let this teach you the importance of unity. Oh, and, and as you see, Jesus' concern that his followers be sanctified in truth so that they can bring this saving revelation of God to the world. Or perhaps you can resolve to share in Jesus' continuing work for which he sent his people into the world, for which he consecrated himself. To share in that work by sharing the truth of the apostles' witness, sharing their gospel which calls people out of the world to life. Jesus prayed for that. That's how he does his work in the world. That's how the Father and the Son are known. Maybe you ought to resolve to speak of Jesus. But above all, I hope that as you think about this prayer that Jesus prayed and included you in on the night before he died, that you will allow yourself to feel the joy of knowing such a saviour, of knowing that the Father and the Son are resolved together to save Jesus' people, you, if you trust him. The joy of seeing the Son's determination to fulfil the Father's will by raising to eternal life all that the Father has given him. The joy of knowing that actually the Son has brought eternal life by revealing the glory of the Father and the Son in his dying and rising and his return to the Father. That you'll know the joy, the joy of knowing that the Father and the Son are determined to keep Jesus' followers in the truth, to keep them from the evil one. That together they are committed to that, to keeping you in the Father's love. That's right. The joy of knowing that the Father and the Son are determined to bring you to see the, Father, the Son's glory. The joy of knowing, verse 23, that in trusting Jesus, in receiving his revelation of himself, that you are loved with the love which with, the, with which the Father loves the Son. That's right. The joy of knowing that in Christ you are caught up in the eternal love of the Father and the Son, a love which has spared no measure to bring you to himself, a love which will keep you forever. I hope as you read and reread this prayer, and you should, that you will know the joy for which Jesus allowed us to hear him speak to his Father. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your Son. And we thank you that this prayer was heard and answered. We thank you that you have glorified your Son Jesus, raising him from the dead, exalting him to your right hand, entrusting him with the Spirit to pour out upon us who believe. And we thank you that in glorifying the Son, the Son has glorified you, shown you to be the faithful, righteous God, the God who keeps your promises, the God who is alone the Saviour of the world. 
We thank you that in granting Jesus prayer, you kept Jesus' first followers and they bore faithful testimony, the word that has brought us to know the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that in keeping them, you have also committed yourself to keep all those whom you have given to your Son, all who believe in him through their testimony. And we thank you, gracious Father, that through your people, united to your Son, you are still saving out of the world, that you are still saving our friends, our family, our gracious Father. We thank you above all that you, in answering that prayer, have guaranteed to all who trust Jesus that one day we will rise with him and we will know the fullness of what we can scarcely imagine, the glory of the Son who gave himself for us, the eternal word, full of grace and truth. Help us, we pray, even now, to know more of that grace and truth in knowing your love for us. And knowing that grace and truth, we pray, make us zealous to show grace to others and to share this truth that saves. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.